Hello and welcome to Enterprise Linux Security, episode 84. As always, I'm Jay and I'm here with Zhao. And this time we're going to talk about security debt. How are you doing? Hi, Jay. It's always a pleasure to be here with you on the podcast. Uh, yeah, today we're going to be talking about security debt, which seems to be being brought up uh, in a lot of articles in the past couple of weeks for some reason that I'm totally oblivious to. Um, but we've discussed something similar, and you mentioned it in the description on the, the video on YouTube, which is technical debt. Well, security debt is when that technical debt translates into security issues. Uh, it's not just a matter of functionality being broken or something being working wrong in the application that you're developing is when that functionality being broken means that there's a security issue behind it. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So technical debt is something that I, I feel like you, either if you're a developer or if you're in DevOps, you're going to be hearing about that most likely. Because working in DevOps is when I heard about it for the first time. So basically there's going to be this backlog of fixes and things that, you know, need to get addressed. If it's just a typo in the in the help page or something, it's not going to really matter if it stays there for a few years or something. It might annoy some grammar people, but it's not, you know, a functional problem. But all these little things kind of stack up and then they don't no one's able to get to them because, you know, they they're busy developing new code. And so, like you were saying, security debt is the exact same thing. There's all these things that you haven't fixed, but the problem is that it's you know, security related. And as we're going to talk about, we have libraries, we have uh, code that needs to be checked. There's a, a lot to unpack here. And at the center of this, there's going to be an article from CloudPro that we'll have in the description after recording time. It'll be there for people that want to check out the article that inspired this talk. Okay, so in that article, they mentioned... Uh, a study and it seems like we brought we bring studies up all the time um, but they mentioned a study where where this company looked at uh, code and uh, at code bases and they found that um, the majority of them have problems lying around for multiple years and they tried to some in some way answer why that is happening and why isn't it being addressed and one of the things and it follows directly from what you just mentioned about DevOps, is that the, the concerns with security and security problems in the code seem to just be an afterthought. So it's some part of the checks that are added in the DevOps pipeline, so that when you compile, there's some security checks that are run against the, the application or some static analysis that is done on the code before compiling. But it's some steps removed from the, the actual development work. And when you have a large enough company, when you have dozens or hundreds of developers working on the same code base, and you can think about an OS or a very complex application or the Linux kernel, for example, and we'll get into the Linux kernel further along the episode. But when you're in that situation, and the only time when the security aspect is actually checked in the code that you're developing together with all these other developers is like a day, a week, maybe a month in the future when there's this, when everybody commits their code and everybody does their feature check-ins and all of that. If it only happens then, then you've lost the context. 
And the developer who initially created the code that has the issue might not even remember why he wrote it that way, which is a big part of this problem. Mm-hmm. And this delay between the actual code development and the security checks is a big part of this problem. And the article mentions that over 70% of organizations have, as and I'm quoting here, could they have software containing flaws that have remained unfixed for longer than a year, of course, constituting security debt, according to a new report from security specialist Veracode, which is mentioned in the article as well. So they're saying 70% mm-hmm. of organizations have this problem. And when I think of security debt, I think of it a bit differently than technical debt. Technical debt, I think of something could crash or something might you know, have an issue or glitch or something. Security debt is the same thing, but it could bring down the company. And it's almost like a menu of things that threat actors can select between when they want to decide which one of those things they're going to utilize to get into the server. And they have this, to them, it's like a menu. To us, it's a a to-do list of things we have to get done. But it's interesting how it represents such a different thing to different people. You see, part of the reason at least in my view from this, is that as more software gets created, as the code bases get larger, teams don't grow in the same proportion. You don't add in a new a new person to the team just because you wrote a new library or something like that. The existing team is supposed to keep writing new code and still deal with the issues in the code that they've written last week, last month, whatever. Um, because you don't grow the team, if, Actually, if you did grow the teams this way, okay, I wrote code that's, that took one man hour. If I had another person to cover for that, you wouldn't have a technical depth, you wouldn't have a security depth because you would have additional manpower, you'd have additional capability to look at the code and maintain that code. Because that doesn't happen in the real world, that is where you get the, the security depth coming in. And in a way, all the security practices, sorry, all the development practices that we're looking at today and that we see today in the industry, whether you go, you're still using Agile or Waterfall or whatever other development practice that you're relying on on your team, whether you're going full DevOps or DevSecOps or whatever ops you want to, to use th- that day, it's all just layers of complexity on top of uh, the, uh, the already existing complexity in the code. And it has to be written by someone. It has to be maintained by someone. And again, it's the same teams doing the, the same development that are going to be adding the the build rules and the compilation that are going to write the scripts and all of that. So it's additional work. And all of that piles up in the long run. And we're stuck with this because we have nothing better. We, had, we don't have a better process to dealing with software creation. It's just getting at the point where we're accruing years and years of depth at this point and the complexity is so large consider it a bit differently if you your average developer can recall say a dozen two dozen lines of code accurately mm-hmm. if you're a good developer if you've been doing it for longer than that you might be able to recall double that three dozen, four dozen, and that's stretching it. If you find someone that does more than that and can recall it accurately every time, you should pay it really a lot of money to maintain it on your team. Most people don't. Most people don't have that ability. 
and we're now dealing with code bases in the millions of lines of code. It's absolutely impossible for anyone to, to grasp their heads around them. It's absolutely impossible for any team, for that matter, to accurately manage those, those very large code bases. That's the reason why it's much easier to add new features to when an application is just starting to be developed than when it has already been out in the market for long and already has a user base and it's already large enough that touching one part of it might break something differently on the other side and no one on your team is aware of that fact, even if they were the ones that initially created it. That's a really big problem. And it gets even bigger because even if your organization does not have this issue so much, the third-party libraries that you're pulling in might. So it, it's like we d develop third-party libraries so we don't write the same code twice, or we could have a you know an easier way to maintain this. Maybe someone wrote a you know library that can access the sound card or print graphics on the screen or something, and we don't have to develop those things because we could you know include those libraries. But if those libraries have, the developers of those libraries, their teams or their community has technical debt there, you're pulling in technical debt as you pull in libraries, which um, I, I feel like could easily make this become even more out of control than it already is. It is out of control, and, and it's a very big industry problem. You're ha you have regulations, you have laws being put in place where you want everybody to be striving for security and you want every piece of software development that is done to follow really strict and rigid rules about how they do things and how they keep data secure and communications encrypted and all of that. But then everything is just so complex that it's really hard to actually comply with that and to have the technical ability to comply with that. It's not just a matter of, oh, we don't want to comply with that because it's it's very difficult or it's going to cost us a lot of money to comply with that. It's actually difficult to do at the technical level. If somebody enforced you to have full awareness of... There's, a, there's an article that I stumbled when I was researching for this episode, an article on Wikipedia about lines of code. Uh, source lines of code. If you search that in Wikipedia, you'll find uh, the actual article that I'm referring to. Lines of code is not a really good metric, but because code can be written in different ways, you can have a one-liner that does what five or six different lines of code can do and all of that, but still it's a way to wrap your head around the, the actual size of the code base. It's the distro watch of coding complexity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Essentially. <laughs> So yeah. let's put this into perspective. In 2001, the Linux kernel had around 2,400,000 lines of code. Just two years later, this was in version 2.4.2. Two years later, on the Linux kernel version 2.6.0, it was over 5 million lines of code. It had doubled in two years. There's absolutely no way that nobody can keep their head wrapped around what's happening there. But People still need to maintain that code. People still need to fix security problems that arise in that code. People still need to be able to add new features to that code. This is the, the level of complexity that we're dealing with. This was in 2000 and, let me check the date again, 2003, when it had 5 million. It was over 20 million lines of code in 2015. The growth has been incredible. And we are talking just about the kernel itself. So you have your 
average Linux distribution out there. It's not just the kernel that comes in the distribution. You have all of these packages around all of this additional software and all of that. Debian, if you take the whole distribution, it, <laughs> I mean, by 2001, it was over 30 million lines of code already. The kernel plus the applications that were bundled with it. And it kept doubling and doubling every couple of years. And that's just where we are. To be completely honest, I'm amazed that we don't see more security problems that are really high impact and high risk due to all the, the large number of code that's out there. We really suck at writing code. That's why we keep doing mistakes and adding problems in the code that we write. We really suck at writing code. Yeah. We don't sync like computers. We have an innate... We like to think that we understand them and that we have some type of special relation with the machine when you're good at computing and you're good at writing code, but we really suck at doing it, if we're being honest. And this just compounds the, the amount of code and how inept we are at doing it. Man, this is a ticking bomb. I feel like software development is almost like a like, like you're rolling a snowball up a hill and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually you know, it gets big enough and it's out of control and it's rolling down the hill and you can't even catch it, can't even, I mean, it's just kind of growing on its own and growing, you know, at this monumental rate. And then meanwhile, we're just people, you know, we're humans. We, we, we have, you know, one brain, you know, two hands or whatever. It's really hard to maintain all that. And I wonder if threat actors think of this like there's always a vulnerability to use. There's always a way in. Maybe sometimes the only thing that separates whether they bother to do it or not is whether or not they just have enough, uh, you know, uh, whatever feeling or, or a big enough goal or it's targeted enough to actually go after the company. I mean, there's obviously laws that prevent these kinds of things, but doesn't prevent the security or the threat actors. But at the same time, it's like they know the threats are there or the vulnerabilities are there. They know they can get in. They just have to want to at this point. Yeah, at this point, it seems like it's just that. They just need to look hard enough and they'll find a way in. Mm -hmm. um, what you were talking about with pulling, the, with pulling libraries and adding all the problems that come with the libraries, that's absolutely true. That's the supply chain that we've discussed at length in previous episodes. One way, one strategy that some organizations use to deal with that is that they'll pick one specific version of a library and they'll stick with that even if updates come out. So you don't have breaking changes from features being added or removed to the library. So you don't have additional work to deal with that. And you just have one, one specific version to keep track of. Unfortunately, that also has downsides, obviously. First, right. that version is at some point is going to be unsupported by whoever was developing in the first place. So issues are still going to be found there and you're going to have to deal with them yourself and you're going to have to keep track of them yourself but if at, at that point when it gets unsupported you decide that you need to move to the most recent version of the library then you're going to hit breaking changes because you're no longer just jumping from version 1.1 to 1.2 you're going to be jumping from version 1.1 to version 5 or version 6 and that's where you're going to get breaking changes. That's when you're going to need a lot of work to do to keep it to keep it in play. Someone is mentioning open source in the comments. This is absolutely not an open source specific problem. Right. It's just that with open source, you can actually look at the code and see the problem. Technical depth and security depth, it's a problem 
on closed source on any operating system at any company developing software. This is a software development problem. This isn't a open source or closed source issue. The first time I ever heard about technical debt was with, uh, you know, which is the, the opposite of this, or not opposite, but parallel, was, you know, in that exact same situation. It was a proprietary application. It wasn't open source. That was the first time I've ever heard of technical debt. So, yeah, security debt is just a consequence of development practices. It's a side effect, not anything specific towards one or the other. It's just when you're writing all the all this code, you have a finite amount of time to get something written before the deadline. And it takes a certain number or amount of code to make that happen. And eventually, you know, you keep writing code, keep writing code, and you're writing new code that might cause a vulnerability with something that was written 10 years ago, for all you know, then in all these different spaghetti strings of functions connecting here and connecting there, it's not something that you can simplify. It kind of sounds like a simple problem. It's like, well, just catch up with the security debt, get it done, hire somebody. What are you waiting for? But it's not that simple, especially you have the the libraries. At that point, if you want to hire someone to fix it, you got to hire someone for every community of every library that you're using. And it's a human at the other end. You're still not sure that you're going to have um, bug-free code. It's just it, we're, we've created something bigger than us is what I think. And then we we are trying to catch it. Like we're trying to catch that snowball rolling down the hill. We created this thing that's bigger than us. And now it's like, what do we do with this thing now? The typical Java program, um, application um, last year had over 150 dependencies. That's 14 more than the year previous. So that's 150 imports that you were doing in your Java stuff and 150 libraries that you need to keep up with. It's a lot of stuff that you need to maintain just to get your application uh, up and running. Um, and then there's the problem, how do you deal with this? So you can focus you've identified the security problems in your code. You know that you need to fix the important stuff and you need to fix it immediately because it's causing problems. It's going to have an impact on your bottom line at the end of the fiscal year. It's going to impact sales. It's going to impact your reputation. So you need to address those things. So you prioritize. I'm going to focus on the, the critical high-risk vulnerabilities first. I'm going to leave the other ones just simmering there, see if nobody notices them because they're not really that important. But then you fall into that, that problem with context. You don't know exactly when a vulnerability that's in the code is going to have a weird interaction with something else that is found elsewhere or that is found today and uh, plays nicely with something that was found three months ago but wasn't that big of a deal at the time. And now you've left it in place, it's in the code, it's out there, people know about it, and now you have another problem in your hands. And this prioritization, because it's impossible to deal with all of them at the same time, you're going to leave some on the table, and you're always at risk of leaving the ones that are going to, to hurt you in the, in the future. Again, this isn't something that's easily solvable. Like cybersecurity itself, and this is a the root of many of the problems in cybersecurity, but like cybersecurity itself, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's unsolvable, but it's right there next to it. Yeah, it's it is pretty up there. It's it's. It, I mean, there's some things you could do to make it more 
I don't want to say comfortable because it's not, but make it a little bit better by a maybe single digit percentage or something, maybe 10% if you're lucky, like having a check when code is submitted and merged, as the article was saying, to scan for vulnerabilities in the code before it's merged in. That's not going to solve the problem because obviously that's, um, you know, you might find other vulnerabilities outside of that that isn't in your code base or maybe the scanner isn't as good as you think it is. But there's some minimum practices we can do here and maybe a code review being, you know, one of the least that people can do. But again, it's it's one of those problems we all need to be aware of. If we find a solution, great, but it doesn't seem so much like we can. We're going to be dealing with this for a long time and maybe ongoing. Moving the, the security checks closer to the developer is likely a good idea. Um, if I can run the checks locally on my machine before I commit the code, I might be able to find stuff before it gets merged in and it's harder to fix. So looking at ways of integrating that while you're developing, that's likely to be a good, a good route to, to go down to. However, there are different strategies to address this. On the Linux kernel side, and I mentioned before that we were going to touch on this, and I really do because I, I find the, the subject really interesting. Greg Rowe Hartmann, which is the, the team lead for the security team on the, the kernel development side of things, um, he has this presentation on YouTube uh, called uh, Long Live CVE, CVEs are dead, or something to that effect, where he completely bashes CVEs and tells about how the process is broken and there are fundamental flaws with CVEs and that it's used in the wrong way and it's not very efficient and effective. And for all of those reasons that he points out in that video, and I've made reference to this video before in the podcast, uh, but for all the reasons that he points out in that video, he says he said at the time, and this was 2019, if I'm not mistaken. I'm quoting from my head. I might be wrong by a year. Um, and he makes a, a comment there that says that for all the reasons that I'm mentioning here, the system being broken and CVEs being fundamentally flawed, the Linux kernel will never use CVEs. So with every single release, we, on the kernel security team, and I'm paraphrasing him, we always fix a security problem or two, but we never write it down on the notes and we don't tell anybody about it. So that's the reason why you should always be on the latest and greatest version because you will receive fixes that you don't even know are there. But always run the latest version, always be up to date on the kernel. It's going to help you on the security aspect. So too much surprise not just mine. I was going to say we could probably just recommend everyone run Arch Linux at this point because it's rolling that always have the latest kernel, right? 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 <laughs> I compile it from source regardless, so okay. it doesn't really matter much and I use it on Fedora. Cool. Anyway, um, as I was saying, to much surprise, a couple of weeks ago, Greg Crow Hartman announced that uh, the kernel was now a CV numbering authority. What that means in layman's term is that they are now going to start creating CVs themselves directly from the kernel team. Hmm. Interestingly, there are many ways to approach that news. First, it flies completely in, in, opposite, in opposition to what he had said before and everything that he had blasted about the CVE system. And now they are issuing the CVs themselves. But more importantly than that, 
and he goes to lengths to explain this on a blog post that they made. There is there is likely going to be a CV for every single bug fix that gets done in the kernel. If you've ever looked at the release notes for the kernel, at the commit messages for the kernel, that's a lot of bug fixes every single release, like hundreds if not thousands, every single minor release. If they're going to start adding CV notes for every single one of those, and here's the, here's the rationale that he gave out for this. Because we can't know the context in which you are running the kernel, we can never know if a specific bug is just a bug or is a security problem. And that's absolutely true, and you can't really argue against that. Um, it might be a bug in a subsystem that you never use and had, don't even have compiled, so it won't affect you, but it might be something that you rely on for your day-to-day -day operations and it's absolutely critical in your system and on anybody else's. So you, you either go all-in or you don't. And they're probably likely going all-in. It's going to be a lot of CVs, but that has a tremendous impact in the industry. And the tremendous impact being that there are, for example, companies out there that say that you cannot run any piece of software that has a non-CV attached to it. So you can imagine the impact that something like this has. No one can run anything except DOS. You could run DOS. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Let's go back to DOS. That, that was secure. You can't connect anything. So this, this was absolutely brutal. And it goes to show how impactful something like this is. It's not necessarily security issues and they're not necessarily addressing just security bugs, but because they don't know context, everything can be a security bug. Um, this goes back to the initial topic of the security depth. Most often, in most circumstances, you don't have any idea of the context in which your application gets run. It might be running next to another application that has some weird interaction with yours that you're not aware of. So a bug, something that you might consider trivial and not a security problem, might translate into an actual security problem for that specific user in that specific situation. Um, again, it all boils down to the complexity. It's impossible to determine this beforehand but you need to deal with the aftermath of this type of decisions, whether in the development process like this, or now from the kernel, and this is a slightly different, it's a tangent topic from the security depth, but this change in the kernel, this will have a dramatic impact if you're handling security or if you're responsible for securing your systems. Companies, I'm not going to name them, but there are companies out there where the engineering team, when they want a security fix to get applied to production faster, they'll create a CVE around it because it know, they know that it fast-tracks the whole process and it gets merged immediately rather than waiting months to see it in production. That's pretty smart. Yeah, it, it fast-tracks all the internal checks that they have. Um, wow. But when the kernel does this, when you're going to... If they actually go forward with this and they start issuing hundreds of CVs with every single kernel release out there, oh boy, this is going to change the way that you deal with your applications and your patching and your security bulletins. <laughs> because all the time, everything is going to just be flashing red with non-patched issues and non-compliant systems. Yeah, watch how Again, fast somebody comes up with a different uh, metering scheme. Uh, to replace CVEs within the next two years, they get tired of this. Who knows? 
it has been pointed to me that might, that might be the the initial idea all along. This might be the straw that breaks the CVE systems back. Um, it might be the way that they found to completely break the system and try to get something different in play. There seems to be a little bit of emotion behind a lot of that. I mean, it's clear, you know, even even though as you paraphrasing, you know, you got the idea behind what the what, what was being said, and it kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously doesn't like CVEs. You want your CVEs? You can have your CVEs. I'll give you all the CVEs you could ever want. But again, like all decisions in security, this brings along unintended consequences. This adds visibility to the problems. So you have a CVE, you have a a report about the problem. It will mention where it happens. It will mention some vague description on how it's triggered and something like that. And this is both good and bad. It's good because more information is more information, and that's never a bad thing. But the bad side of it is that that's more information also for the threat actors. Oh, you mean there's another vulnerability in, I don't know, the memory management portion of the kernel. Let me look at the memory management portion of the kernel, specifically the diffs in the past couple of versions, and see what was fixed. Oh, your company is running the older version? Hmm. Let's try to exploit that in your system. It, it makes the whole, um, you know, into open source intelligence thing a lot easier, I would say. <laughs> People running older versions will always be in trouble. Right. So <laughs> you're either running the absolutely latest version of the kernel, which supposedly includes the fixes for this, for the problems that they are going to have the CVEs for, or you're always going to be in trouble. Um if you have compliance metrics that you need to meet, if you have some internal practices that you follow about not running and patch stuff, boy, you're going, you're in for a surprise if this gets true. Yep, I, I just feel like we're in general in IT we're kind of like hitting a major ceiling in pretty much every industry. It's not that we can't get through the ceiling; we can. It's just to do so another layer of complexity is needed and it's just um it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out and maybe it won't be any different or maybe somebody have a brilliant idea but it kind of sounds like you were saying earlier this is something that people when it comes to security debt they'll be dealing with for quite some time if not forever this specific situation is a follow-up from the curl's worst security problem ever sink we talked about this a few weeks back um, at some point, the, the curl development team announced that they were going to be releasing information about the worst vulnerability in curl he- recent history or something like it. It was yeah. a problem. It was something about break leaking DNS resolution when you were supposed to be in an encrypted communication. It wasn't that big of a deal for most users. Um, and that in itself is a response to a security report, a CVE that was issued against curl a few months prior to that, in which somebody claimed that there was a bug and a security problem, and in fact the development team at curl claimed that it was just a bug and they had fixed it, and the situation escalated quickly. Then curl announced this worst security problem ever in response to that, and then the curl project itself became a CVE numbering authority as well. And the kernel followed suit, becoming also a CV numbering authority itself just recently. And 
yeah, the more I talk about it, the more it starts to make sense that, yeah, this might be a not so quiet way to try and definitely break the CV system. Personally, I've always held the, the belief that the Colonel leadership team, the big names, the ones that you recognize, not just Linus, they're pretty opinionated people. They have strong feelings about stuff. And they're not very quiet about them. So if they don't agree with something, they will come out and they will loudly proclaim why they don't agree with something and changes should be made and all of that. When Greg Crow Hartman did this video, this presentation, a few years back against CVs, I absolutely could not ever imagine him now promoting the, the CVE system. So yeah, while my yeah. initial reaction to this announcement was this is going to be massively bad because we're going to have lots of CVEs coming out, it might indeed just be them trying to break the system. And it's going to be interesting if they do because we haven't come up with a better alternative in all the years that we've had CVEs and everybody knew that there were problems with the CVE system and we never came to an agreement on a better alternative for it. It's going to be interesting if we do come out, we do come up with an alternative that's actually better coming from this because right. this progressing as, as they present it, it's going to be unmanageable in a couple of months. I can see that happening. There's a lot of, lot of things to manage and a lot of AI talk and security debt, technical debt, uh, library poisoning. There's a lot of things that people need to worry about. So I don't think we're going to run out of things to talk about. I would just like to, to go back to that argument that a bug is a bug is a bug and we might just file a CV for every single bug rather than just when they become security problems. This sometimes clouds the way that you approach software development bugs specifically. Just because you haven't found a way in which you can transform that bug that you're seeing in the code into something that's actually actionable from a security standpoint doesn't mean there isn't one. It doesn't mean that there won't be a way to, to effectively exploit that in the future. Handling every, every bug as if it's a security bug, it's a reasonable tactic. If you're a development house and if you're managing a development team, it's reasonable to accept that every, every bug that you have in the code is a potential security problem and deal with it in that, in that way. Obviously, like when we started the conversation about how difficult it is to maintain the security depth low and maintain it controlled, if you consider every single bug as a security problem, then it's only going to compound the problem and it's going to make it harder to manage. But consider that you do not know the context in which your code is going to be run in the future. Mm -hmm. Lots of things can influence the way that an application runs, not just the code that you create. Um, you really need to consider if if it's not a good approach to to have a metric that you can show to your board okay see we have this amount of bugs we have no way to tell which of them is actually a security problem or not in the future so that's why we need more resources that's why we need more hires that's why we need more tools or better tools or a different system and that's why we need more investment into the code development side of things and besides, every bug is a security bug if the threat actor is clever enough. <laughs> and we know they are. Oh, yeah, they are. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we'll leave you with that statement. And unless you had anything else to add? or No, I think that, that wraps it up for today.
So let's skedandle in our security debt, and we'll be back again with another episode. Um, yeah, so def- definitely check out the description. I'll have the article there for everyone to read more about security debt, and then we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Until the next one.